Hey everyone, and welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Helen. And I'm Riley. And I've started calling it Bapple. <laughs> Sometimes we just wander through the house and shout, Bapple. Bapple? Bapple. Like that. I think Riz does it more than yeah, me. Yeah, I definitely do it a lot more. <laughs> anyway, today we're talking about Australia's most wanted man, who hasn't been seen for 10 years. Well, I guess you gave him that title, Riz. Australia's most wanted man. Australia's most wanted man for me. No, it's... Would be Chris Hemsworth. You... <laughs> Good one. God, could you imagine if he actually listened to our podcast? <laughs> yeah, and he would be offended that we didn't refer to him as the most wanted well, man. So you, I'm just we've clarif- clarified. <laughs> Thank God you clarified. Yeah. But I guess you... What were you saying, sorry? No, I was just saying that it does... This is not just me coming up with this. It is also often used by media outlets to right. describe this man. Okay. I see. So that means, though, that this man is still could still be on the run. Mm. But that's not even half of this juicy story. It's a wild ride. And when Riz said that he was called the head and fingers killer, I said we had to do it. And I'm so excited to tell it. We're talking murder, mafia, missing man, and 3,000 tins of tomatoes. It's got everything. The story of Australia's most wanted man begins all the way back in 1981. On the 6th of February, the weekend before his wedding, 23-year-old Graham Potter was having his bucks party at the Crown Gardens Disco in Wollongong on the New South Wales south coast. Love the gong. The gong. Shout out to the gong. (laughs) At the disco, he spotted 19-year-old shop assistant Kim Barry. The pair knew each other from some local dance classes that they took. They shared a bottle of wine at the disco and chatted together for a bit, before Potter invited her back to his apartment. Once at the apartment, he decided to shoot his shot with Kim and started making sexual advances, but she wasn't buying it. After Potter was rejected, he flew off the handle into a violent rage and hit Kim over the head with a spanner, shattering her skull, and then strangled her. He then put Kim's lifeless body into the spare room and went back to the disco. Obviously, he was having some major FOMO. Yeah. At the end of the night, Potter returned to the apartment with his brother, who slept on the couch. While his brother was sleeping on the couch, he took Kim's body into the bathroom, where he used a hacksaw to cut off her head and fingers to prevent identification of the body. He wrapped these body parts in sheets and his dressing gown and put her purse and clothing into a plastic bag. He also used her bra to tie her wrists and legs together. The barbaric treatment of Kim's body earned him the title of the head and fingers killer. After his brother left the apartment the next morning, Potter drove along Jamburu Lookout Road, an hour away from Wollongong. He stopped at different points along the clifftop to throw the various body parts and belongings over the edge. Kim's body was discovered not long after this by some hikers, and Potter was already prepared to hit the road. He got cash out from the bank, told his family and his lawyer that he was in trouble and needed to leave. Have you ever heard the saying, hit the frog and toad? No. Oh, that's like another way to say hit the road. What's the joke? Huh? What's the joke? Why is it a frog and toad? Hit the frog and toad, because it sounds like road. What about frog? Well, you hit the toad would be dumb, right? (laughs) (laughs) But if hit the frog and toad, that's the road. Excellent, excellent. There you go, there's some slang for you. I'll use that when I maybe hit the frog and toad one yeah. day. <laughs> Despite Potter's best efforts to de-identify the body, Kim is able to be identified when police release pictures of the bra and blouse that were found with her body. So nice try, Graham. 
And Kim's mother came forward and told police that they belonged to her daughter, who had been missing since last Friday. At this point, the groomsmen who were at the Bucks party start to snitch. Gosh, it's not working out for him. No. One friend tells police that he's left town, and another confirms that he saw Potter with Kim that night. Police then searched Potter's apartment and found that it was empty and had been deep cleaned. At this point, he's really the prime suspect. Two weeks later, Potter's car is found in a train station car park in Goulburn, New South Wales. He was officially on the run. Two months later, in April 1981, Potter turns up at his parents' house and his dad calls the police. Listen, I think this was the right thing for the dad to do. I know it would have been hard to like call the police on your son, but... It's probably even a scarier concept having him like out on the run and not knowing what's happening to him. Mm. Potter had grown out a beard and dyed his hair red before catching the train to Melbourne. I mean all his hair. His hair, like head hair, chest hair, facial hair. (laughs) All of it. Are you sure? I think so. Oh God, leg hair. Maybe. Maybe he just wore long pants. Right. Anyway, he was trying to sell the ginger fantasy. He even says that he flew to New Zealand for a little bit, but this is unconfirmed. After his arrest, Potter makes up this story that Kim was involved with drug dealers who'd stormed into his apartment, murdered her, and then forced him to dispose of the body. And he ran because he was fearing for his life. It turns out that being a pathological liar was something that Potter did all the time, and might be part of the reason he's missing still. Naturally, his story didn't really fly in court, and Potter is convicted of Kim's murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum non-parole period of 15 years, and is due for release in 1996. don't know what was happening in 1981. I can't comment on the climate or the sentencing provisions, but that is low-key, mm. not a strong sentence. Pretty short. How do we know that he wasn't lying exactly? I'm just wondering. Right. I think there was a lot of evidence that he... And, like, they all, he couldn't prove that there was anyone else there. Oh, yeah. And it really stacked up that, like, the, the friends were like, yeah, he was gone from this time to this time. Yeah. But we are assuming, like, strongly assuming, I guess, with good evidence that he got angry and killed her, that that was the... I mean, we're not assuming. It's he was found guilty. Helen's been proven in a court of law. Please have some respect for the process. <laughs> well, I, well, it sounds like they just were like, yeah, that's a lie, this bit. he I mean, he couldn't prove it, right? And the police could obviously prove that their theory was right. I'm just wondering about the MO, like if he did kill her because he was really angry. Right. Or if he yeah. did kill her because maybe she was a bit sus. While he's in prison, he marries his fiancée, Cherie, in 1982. Cherie, I have a PSA. I know there's a lot of like social circumstances that come into play, especially if your spouse is violent. Okay, I get it. But why are you still here simping over this murderer who murdered someone because he she wouldn't sleep with him eight days before your wedding? It is kind of a thing, I guess. Citation. Zac Efron is Ted Bundy. And I guess until one of us has a significant other sentenced to jail for murder, mm. who are we to know? All I'm saying is she had 15 whole years before she had to see him again. Well, she gets to visit him in prison. Yeah, but I'm saying it would have been, like, an ideal time to call it quits. Because it's not like she had to, like, see him. Right. Perfect opportunity. But she went through with it. I don't know. Anyway. And he had one successful attempt at escaping prison, but was recaptured the next day. 
he got an extra three months added onto his sentence, so it really wasn't worth it. Also during this time in prison, he meets some very high-ranking criminals, including Melbourne underworld leader Pasquale Barbaro. Barbaro was in prison for drug-related crimes and was intrigued by the ruthless nature of Potter's crime and thought Potter would be a perfect addition to his gang. Wow, what a networker. Yeah, I wish I could network like this. Maybe I'd have a job by now. Let me tell you a little bit more about Pasquale, just out of interest. So the Barbaro family is very well known in criminal networks all around Australia, and apparently they really love the name Pasquale. So our Pasquale lived in Melbourne. He had a nephew, also Pasquale Barbaro, who lived in Melbourne and was murdered in a hit at a children's football clinic in Essendon in 2003. Was he a kid? No, no. He was like a dad. Oh, right. Yeah, at the clinic. You had the nephew, you had the football clinic. Yeah, he was was like watching soccer dad. His father, also Pasquale Barbaro, was murdered in a hit in Brisbane in 1990 after becoming a police informant. And there was another nephew, another Pasquale Barbaro, who was living in Sydney until he was killed in a suspected gang hit in 2015. Can you imagine their Christmas dinners and someone's like, hey, Pasquale, and like 10 yeah. people look up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> it's like being in our house, you say, Riley. Which one? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're everywhere. Maybe we have to dedicate a whole episode to all the Pasquale Barbaros out there. Sounds like if you're in that family and you get given the name Pasquale, it's over for you. Some kind of Pasquale curse. In fact, right now I'm going to Google what Pasquale means. Okay. It's definitely Italian. Pasquale means relating to Easter, apparently, associated with Passover or Easter. However, on Urban Dictionary, Pasquale means an infamous Italian man known for his generosity and savvy with women. Mm. So maybe that's why they love the name Pasquale. Mm. I thought the actual meaning would be something way more epic. Same. Ultimate hitman. Yeah. Mafia lord. Yeah. In Latin. Instead, it's just... Kind of relates to Easter. Easter. Anyway. Anyway. After Potter's release in 1996, he lived on the New South Wales south coast for a few years with his now wife, Cherie, before the pair moved to Tasmania in 2002. Okay, Cherie's made it work. She waited. She waited and she's made it work. And I do respect that. Yeah. I respect that loyalty and that commitment from Cherie. This is where Potter got involved with Barbaro's business, doing a few odd jobs. By this point, Barbaro had become one of the most successful drug dealers in the world, rising to become a kingpin of the Calabrian Honoured Society. I am personally so intrigued by the whole like Italian mafia scene in Melbourne. There's just something so wild about like Ligon Street, gelato shop, assassinations. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on it one day, but today is not that day, so I'm not going to get way into it. And also, I don't want to get a Molotov thrown through our window. I guess our life is lacking a bit of spice these days. That's true. That could spice it up. Anyway, Potter does some random, like, drug running between Tasmania and Victoria. How? With, like, a boat? No, I think he's, like, flying. Right. Maybe on the maybe on the spirit of Tasmania. Is that the boat? It's like the boat, yeah. Oh, right. How long does it take? Uh, overnight. Oh, that's quick. It's pretty, yeah. He does this for Barbaro for about six years. 
During this time, he is promoted through the ranks of Barbaro's gang and became involved not only in the transportation of drugs, but in the logistical operations too, like storage and trafficking. So not only can Potter network, he's also climbing that corporate ladder. Yeah, he's getting those promotions. What a hustle. In 2007, a large shipment of cocaine went missing, and Barbaro immediately suspected his associate, Flash Harry, for either stealing it or leaking details to the police, because obviously the police can't just like run a good operation and find out. Someone must have told them. This situation escalated when another shipment, this time 4.4 tonnes, or 15 million tablets of ecstasy, also went missing. This is about one small male elephant. Helen's decided to use elephant as a unit of measurement today. (laughs) Whenever I see the word tons, I think about elephants. Maybe rhinos, but mostly elephants. And so there you go. There's a visual of how much cocaine, I guess. Ecstasy, ecstasy. Ecstasy, sorry. Yeah, they had their fingers in all the pies. Does ecstasy come in, like, pills? Yes. Right. Yeah. That's a lot of pills. Yeah. Anyway. 15 million of them. Mm. Police had intercepted a shipment of 3,000 tins of diced tomatoes, which had been shipped from Naples in Italy, which contained the huge stash of drugs. 3,000 tins of diced tomatoes. Sounds like your <laughs> shelf in the pantry, Helen. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm working my way through them. I keep buying them thinking I don't have any. Now I have like four. (laughs) This stash was 2,000 times the minimum amount of drugs considered to be a commercial quantity and had an estimated street value of $122 million. Holy shit. Ever heard of eggs in one basket? They just went ahead and put all their tins on one ship. Yeah. And if that was 2,000 times the minimum, that means 1.5 cans is the minimum. Just saying. Mm. Keep your ecstasy or whatever under 1.5 tomato cans. I, I also saw a picture of the tomato cans, and what I thought in my head, I was like, oh, it must have been, like, the tablets must have been, like, wrapped in plastic in some t- in the tomatoes. Like, there would have been tomatoes in there. There wasn't. Oh, no, I didn't think that. I thought that they would be, like, submerged in... So if you opened a tin, right, you would be like, oh, just tomatoes, all good, and let them through. Right. It wasn't that. Maybe if they'd done that, it would have worked. Yeah, well, Pasquale, I'm here, girl. (laughs) Okay, I'm looking for a gig. It was like if you opened the tin, you cracked a tin of tomatoes, straight up, just pills, full to the brim. Yeah, I guess that means they put the pills through the tin factory. They must have. How did they swing that? Maybe, the, I don't know. They've got an inside man in the tomato factory. Anyway, Barbaro is furious that Flash Harry has messed up his plans, and so are the Calabrian honoured society bosses in Italy. So Barbaro flies over there for a meeting. The society want to fly in one of their hitmen to kill Flash Harry, but Pasquale says he has a man that can handle it. Dude, the things I would do to be a fly on the wall in that room. That would have been sick. You know that James Bond movie where he like goes into that like meeting and the table's like a kilometre long and everyone in there is like wearing masks and like these badass suits. <laughs> I feel like that's a, a very cinematic interpretation yeah, that's, of mafia. Yeah, well that's what I've got in my head. It was probably just like a... This combo might have just happened in the back of the tin tomato factory. Yeah, or like the back of a car like us. Of course the man Pasquale recommends is Graham Potter. What a recommendation. He should have come up with a nickname by now. Graham Potter sucks. The name? Mm. At least Flash Harry was onto something. Even though Flash Harry is also kind of hilarious. (laughs) 
Barbaro offered Graham $100,000 to carry out the hit on Flash Harry. So, yeah, Potter has killed someone before, but he's far from being a hitman. He doesn't have that much experience, and to pull off killing Flash Harry, a high-ranking mafia associate, as his first hit, this was going to take some good planning. But good planning there was not. He had a gun and came up with a time and place, but the plan fell apart when he picked up a Mitsubishi Magna with dodgy registration papers from a mafia contact. I get that it's important to have, like, a low-flying, untraceable car, but surely at least get, like, a souped-up BMW, like, some cool car. You're in the mafia. Again, I'm telling you, you've only seen cinematic representations (laughs) of the mafia. Yeah, and I'm expecting it to be a lot cooler than a Mitsubishi Magna. I bet it was, like, a fugly, like, rust colour, too. (laughs) Anyway, this car also doesn't come with a roadworthy certificate. Basically, it's reliability, very sketchy. He goes to carry out the hit the first time and the car breaks down. Not ideal, but we won't be deterred. He tries again and you won't believe it. The car breaks down again. Oh no. (laughs) What a disaster. (laughs) There was also a third attempt, which was aborted for another reason. Probably because this hasn't been the smoothest hit, right? Tensions are high, maybe people are getting suspicious, or maybe the universe just wasn't having it. Not third time lucky, I would have just let it go. Yeah. I would have gone back to the drawing board, or the car yard at least. (laughs) Apparently, one of these hits was planned to happen at the wedding of Mick Gatto's son, who was also a mafia boss. That's some gang shit. That's the cinema that I'm after. (laughs) That's true, that's true. But it didn't happen, so what do I say? Doesn't happen like that in real life. Yeah, you're right. So, he screws it up, right? Big time. One of the attempted hits was under police surveillance too, which he didn't know at the time because his shitbox car didn't have a rear vision mirror. I guess that also means he wasn't looking in his side mirrors either. He was looking straight ahead. <laughs> he was trying to find Harry. <laughs> you got to be quick if you got to find Flash Harry. Yeah, true. He's the Flash. Potter was picked up by police over Tinned Tomato Gate and eight months later is also charged with conspiracy to commit murder. The whole gang is arrested, including Pasquale, who was eventually sentenced to life imprisonment for his role in the drug importation. And that's how he met with the Pasquale curse. So Potter has become a huge liability for the society, and he's in police custody, which is not somewhere you want to be. These guys have eyes, ears, and hands everywhere. If they're worried you're going to talk, they'll make sure you can't. So he dips while he's out on bail, and fails to appear in the Melbourne Magistrates' Court for the drug and conspiracy to murder charges in February of 2010. They cannot find him in 2010. We have fairly sophisticated CCTV, some number plate recognition, some we got some good tech. They can't find him. He's gone. He isn't cited at all until August 2010, six months later, in Tully, North Queensland. Three men were stopped during a routine police stop on the way to a concert. I wonder which concert they were going to. 2010? Must be Kesha. Kesha, yeah. (laughs) In Tully. (laughs) During the stop, all three men ran. If that's not sus, (laughs) I don't know what is. And they would have, like, I guess they would have bolted from all directions out of the car. Like, every door flings open and they all run. (laughs) Yeah, like a clown car. (laughs) Two of them were apprehended by police, but one got away. These two confirmed that the third man was Graham Potter, and he had escaped into the tropical bushland 
half naked, only wearing a pair of jeans. Imagine, the only one you can't catch is Australia's biggest fugitive. God. Imagine the police, like, scrambling through the mangroves. They're like, stop, stop, chasing after this 50-year-old half-naked guy. Once they knew it was him, they were able to search the campsite he'd been staying at. They found a hand-scribbled note, which included a list of things he wanted to learn. Like, skills. We love a queen that's always learning. This included IT skills, potentially to make a fake ID, beekeeping, welding, hydroponics, and aquaponics, and silicon casting, whatever that is. He had various things that he could have used for disguises, different pairs of glasses, and a note with a reminder to get theatrical supplies. So, presumably, wigs, prosthetics, all that jazz. He also had a pair of bright red Crocs. Fashion. Fashion, honey. If you're trying to go undetected, is bright red Crocs really the best way? I just imagine him, like, legging it from the car with (laughs) bright red Crocs and And one, like, flies off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. He had a few hunting knives and fishing line. You know what they say, Helen? Yeah. He knew how to fish. This is is a metaphor for him. He's getting along by himself, you know? Teach a man to fish. He'll be a fugitive for a lifetime. Yeah. That's how it goes. He also had heaps of food. Barley, pasta sauce, tuna, all gourmet ingredients. Mm -mm, Yummy. One thing that stood out in the pictures was a bottle of lube. I don't know if he was using it for another purpose, but good to be prepared, I guess. And I guess the question I have for you is, Mm. is, was it like a sexual bottle of lube? Yeah, it was like sex lube. (laughs) Right, like... It was like tingling l- sensations. No, it was just like it was like the very basic like lifestyles. Oh, okay. The okay, blue okay. lube. Right, bottle. right. But it just like really stood out for me, like in his like tent. It, he's just got a tarp for a floor. Definitely not the most like romantic environment, but get it done, Graham, you player. Make that shit work. They also found a newspaper clipping which had job listings for housekeepers and station hands for remote properties, some of which had been circled and highlighted. So he was on the job hunt, like all of us oh, now. Still on the grind! Yeah. He's still on that job grind. This is what led police to their current main theory, that he's been working as a station hand on remote properties in far north Queensland or the Kimberley Ranges in Western Australia, changing up his appearance and using his apparent charm to trick people into believing him. Police know that he has a lot of manual labour skills, including prospecting and earth moving, and that he's probably been able to get cash-based work or work for board and food at various remote stations. They think that if he isn't living on the properties he's working at, he's living between informal rental homes, caravan parks and campsites. He's described as being Caucasian, 175 centimetres tall, medium to solid build, with a fair complexion, brown eyes, brown greying hair and a ginger beard, which really is not a helpful description. He's also known to wear gold sleeper earrings in both ears, wears glasses and regularly wears a gold chain around his neck. But police also suspect that he's disguising himself using hair colour, wigs and even fat suits. It's fairly easy to change up his appearance because he's been described as being so ordinary which is partly why he's been able to evade detection for so long. Potter has also gone by the aliases Josh Lawson, John Page, Jim Henderson, and Peter Adams. I feel like I know one of each of those names. Me too. I know a Jim Henderson, I reckon. Isn't that the the, the Muppets guy? 
I don't know. I think it is. Peter Adams sounds like a um Peter Adams sounds like a premier. Yeah, he kinda does. <laughs> a politician. Yeah. Josh I reckon Josh Lawson. I reckon that's the one he uses with the ladies. Who? Nice to meet you, I'm Josh. <laughs> Josh Lawson. <laughs> anyway. So he hasn't been seen by police since this August two thousand and ten sighting. But we're pretty sure that he's still kicking around, working at different stations. There have been a lot of reported sightings, but like we said earlier, he's so ordinary looking. These tips often run into a dead end, or more often lead police to some other random grey nomad just trying to enjoy some long service leave. Police say it normally does more harm than good when the media reports on potential sightings of Potter, because not only does it alert him to the fact that he's now been seen and give him time to move, but it also leads to a lot more tips that just aren't accurate that police have to spend time chasing down. However, maybe his ability to blend in isn't why Potter has been able to evade police for so long. Some people think that police might be barking up the wrong tree, and have pointed out a couple problems with the theory. Firstly, he has no ID that we know of, which means he doesn't have a Medicare card, so how is he accessing healthcare? He's like 62 now. But look, the man outran police (laughs) with no shirt on at the age of 50, so he's kind of invincible. The note that was found at his campsite in 2010 did contain pretty specific instructions about how to make a fake ID, like using a high-color laser printer on a 200-250 GSM card to get a UV pen for a signature and to put the card through a machine to coat it in plastic. So we can't completely rule out the possibility that he has managed to make one of these and established a new identity. Secondly, he has no criminal network, and he's fallen out of favour with one of the biggest criminal organisations in the world. So not only are the police looking for him, but the mafia is probably trying to get to him first. He's managed to evade everyone. Somehow, for someone that isn't that sophisticated. Or is he? Dude, he messed up that hit three times. Maybe he's just gaslighting us. He wants us to think he's a moron, but he's good. Maybe. Maybe he really liked Flash Harry and didn't want to go through with it. Maybe they were bros. Oh, that's cute. Oh, no. <laughs> no. We can't do <laughs> He's <that>. evil. <laughs> so with these issues in mind, there are a couple of theories which have risen to favour over the years. The first one is that he got eaten by a crocodile in far north Queensland. Apparently in the area Potter went missing, farmers had been complaining of an increase in croc attacks, with crocs taking whole cows and cattle dogs that got too close to the water. And if you aren't aware of the crocodile problem in North Queensland, here's MP Bob Cutter explaining it for you. This is Bob responding to a question about whether he'd be supporting legalising same-sex marriage back in 2016. I mean, you know, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities. You know, I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months... A person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Okay, New Zealand friends, you know I'm in Australia when this is a viable theory. <laughs> yeah. That he got eaten by a crocodile. <laughs> okay. Eaten whole. <laughs> apparently, Swallowed. I actually I did a bit of research, and apparently if, if crocs eat humans, they actually get really bad, like, intestinal problems, and they get, like, really gassy. <laughs> and so, like, normally, if a crocodile has, like, eaten a human and you go near it, it's like swamp like it's water Mm -hmm. it has been like burping and farting so much and it smells so horrifically bad like you can normally tell there you go everything in this country is out to get you 
<laughs> the people, the crocs. Are they giving this theory a time of day? I guess they are. Yeah, because where is he? Where is he, bro, right, if he's not in a right, crocodile tummy? Right. The second theory is that he's managed to find a nice lady partner and is just living a quiet life, surviving mainly on her income and laying low. Some people say that there's just no way he's doing it alone, without access to medication and food. We know he's a ladies' man. Remember, he did manage to keep Cherie in good favour, even after the Bucks Night murder scenario. And he has managed to weasel his way into a lady's house before. An elderly widow had taken Potter into her house as a lodger, and he stayed there for a while before one of her friends recognised him. Instead of just covertly going to the cops and, like, organising a raid, she decided to confront a convicted murderer herself. He told her that he'd kill her if she turned him in, and took off, all but confirming that it was him. So where is he now? Police believe he's still hanging around, and there's a $100,000 reward for any information that leads to his capture. Potentially the reason why it isn't bigger is because there is some lingering doubt into the viability of him still managing to survive, which is what sparked these alternate theories. I love how the alternate theories go from, well, he's gotten married and he's laying low, to he's gotten swallowed by a crocodile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nothing in between. (laughs) Not that he just met a natural demise. Yeah. Yeah, when he was half naked in the bushland. starved in the bushland. No. No. His parents have emphatically denied his guilt, saying his only involvement in Kim's murder was the disposal of her body while he was, quote, running for his life from the people that killed her. His mother said, quote, I still put away birthday and Christmas presents for him. I write him birthday and Christmas cards and put $50 notes in them. She said she doubts her son will ever turn himself in because a return to prison is as good as a death sentence. She says, and I quote, I just hope he's safe. Damn, mum. That makes me feel sad for the mum. I guess so. It's now been 10 years since the last confirmed sighting, but there has been unconfirmed sightings across Queensland and New South Wales. Police remind the public that Potter is still on the run and that anyone who sees him should call triple zero and not confront him. People with information about his movements or whereabouts should contact Crime Stoppers. So I guess that's pretty much all we have for this case, but F's in the chat for the judge that let him out on bail back in 2008. F's in the chat means, like, pay right. our respects Yeah, for anyone who doesn't understand that. So also F's in the chat for the policeman that couldn't catch a half-naked 50-year-old man bolting into the bushlands with red crocs. <laughs> and F's in the chat for the tin tomatoes. We could have we had 3,000 tins of perfectly good canned tomatoes to use in soups, Maybe we sauces. Wouldn't, we wouldn't have had such a pandemic shortage if they'd <laughs> let those 3,000 tomato tins in. The storyline that, you know, he killed Kim because he was angry, because she wouldn't have sex with him, strangled her, did all that stuff. His fiance didn't believe it clearly Mm. she stayed with him Mm. his parents don't believe it yeah and he was sentenced for it i guess i'm just wondering like how viable any other theory is on that night it's such a weird thing to just begin with to, to, to do yeah it is a weird thing to do yeah right i think like and he doesn't really have any prior history of violence before this point which does make it even stranger but I guess what it came down to is that, like, he just couldn't prove it. He There was nothing that he could present 
yeah. to like prove that that was a viable theory. And I guess like the police case must have like put together some good evidence and like enough evidence to prove that their theory was the right one. Mm. I guess so. Yeah. In the eyes of the law, we know, but mm. really, do we know? In the eyes of God. <laughs> The all-seeing eyes. Do we know? The eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. Exactly. That's what. Oh, that's all I'm asking. Mm. I believe he killed her, obviously. Yeah. Just like the leading up to it. Yeah. Was it because mm. she wouldn't have sex with him? Or was it because maybe she was tied up in some shady shit? And he thought that. Panicked. And panicked. Or maybe the shady shit involved him. Or he was freaking out because he was cheating before his wedding night. Mm, and he was like, oh, oh crap. You could just ask her to leave, though. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, we didn't get to talk much about Kim because she's really only the catalyst of the story, mm. but she was 19, and that is very sad. Yeah, that really is tragic. She was just, like, chilling at yeah. the disco oh, back in 1981. Yeah, having a good night. Probably had She had her whole life ahead of her, many more discos, and it was cut short. So, although in our retelling, she's only the beginning... She's mm. the she. That's a whole. How do I say? That's a whole story in itself. Yeah, her story. Mm-hmm. But we don't. We don't. We didn't. We don't know that much There's about her. Not that much about her out there. Yeah, unfortunately. This is one of those times where like victims get a bit lost in the in the story when their killer like goes on to do like God. all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's all for today, Graham Potter. In case you like to listen to podcasts. We had a great time covering yeah, your case. Yeah, Graham. Getting up to so much stuff. I guess, uh, you know, he's a quote-unquote bad person, but man, this case was fun. It was fun. It was funny to talk about. Yeah. And Iconic. Pasquale. If, I don't know if they like, listen to podcasts in jail, Pasquale, but bro, just like... You're iconic. Maybe any of the other eight Pasquales in that yeah. family are listening to podcasts. Pasquale, junior, 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 junior. <laughs> Maybe they're listening. Pasquale Barbaro the Eighth. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we have got to go. We've got to go because this car is heating up quick. Thank you so much for listening and join us next week. Yeah. See you then. Bye.